0: Hello, and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I am Sarah Jung of York University, and it is my distinct pleasure to be sitting in the lead chair for this uh, episode 43 of On Tap. I am joined um, in newly not in such a chair by panel camp of Washington University in St. Louis. Hello panel and happy almost Thanksgiving. Are you almost done with your end of term? Or how are you navigating the end of the, you know, infamous fall 2020 semester?
1: Yeah, thank you. Hi, Sarah. First of all, I have to say I am having an out of body experience. Uh, Not Going through the pre-show or the top of the show rundown, I love it. I'm so happy. Is that why you're
0: squirming so much? Yeah,
1: (laughs) Yeah, I'm like, what's happening? No, it's amazing. I'm so happy. Um, uh, But yeah, so WashU made the decision to start late. Most universities, if they moved their calendar, started early to try to miss the worst of the winter. WashU went the other way, I think trying to... Allow for additional time to set up its mitigation efforts and its sort of virus surveillance efforts, which have been effective. Um, But what that means is that we're going classes go all the way to December eighteenth, so we've got a full month, and things are getting worse in terms of the pandemic. So um, people are starting to feel pretty run down, Um, but looking forward to December eighteenth and a break coming coming soon.
0: It's this. This is the time, right? The second half of November and beginning. Well, and for you, the first half of, of December. Um, yeah, maybe we can circle back to some questions about how we're supporting uh, our mental health and those around us. Um, but in the meantime, we are also very happy to be joined by one of our new ONTAP regular co-hosts, Jen Pierce, a PhD in theater and a media consultant and user experience designer. Hello, Jen, and welcome to ONTAP.
2: Thank you. I'm so honored to be here. I was kind of a geeky fangirl of ONTAP, so I can't believe that I'm here. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Oh my gosh, it's it's entirely our our pleasure and, and um and I think a really important perspective and, and just kudos to, to panel and 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 thanks to Harvey, um, our sort of original threesome for, you know, opening up the, the podcast in this format. I think it's really an exciting development. Today on the podcast, we're going to talk about uh, imminent threats to theater and performance in higher education both in terms of short-term budget cuts in universities as institutions respond to the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as longer-term demographic and funding challenges. Uh, We'll talk specifically about the latest data from uh, the academic job market, as tweeted out by Noe Montez of Tufts University, as well as some publicly announced staff cuts um, and, Uh, and proposed restructuring, namely at University of Roehampton and Indiana University of Pennsylvania. So thinking about what does this mean for the future of theater and performance studies in higher ed? Relatedly, we're also going to focus on thinking about alternative options and career paths for those outside the academic job market. And so we're delighted, again, that Jen can be with us today to think about digital user experience design, the future of the internet, and how this also connects with uh, emerging forms of digital performance. And coming around a Full circle for this episode, we all watched Circle Jerk, the live stream theatrical theatrical production by Michael Breslin and Patrick Foley in collaboration with Kat Rodriguez and Ariel Sabert, produced by Jeremy O'Harris as part of his deal with HBO to support new theater. Uh, The show made waves last month, one of a spate of recent productions made for this new environment of digital and online performance uh, necessitated in part by the pandemic. Before we get to those topics, uh, I'd like to begin with our land acknowledgement and a brief nod to local history uh, here from Toronto, uh, Ontario. I'm in uh, the area known as Tkaronto, has been caretaken by the Ashinaabic Nation, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, the Wendat and the Métis. This land is subject of the Dish With One Spoon Covenant and Wampum between the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, the Three Fires Confederacy, and other allied nations in an agreement to share and care for land and resources in the Great Lakes region. We occupy land referred to in Crown Treaty 13, known as the Toronto Purchase, signed in 1805. The terms of this treaty were finally met in 2010, when the federal government settled the claims of the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. I also want to recognize that in an era of telematic communications, our conversations require global resources. Zoom headquarters, for instance, are located on the unceded land of the Ohlone with servers located throughout the world. I make this statement of acknowledgement not only as an act of accountability for the past and my debt uh, to to where I am and, and to those who came before me, but also as an enduring commitment to work towards equity and justice today and in the future. Finally, as a bit of local history, I'd like to publicly acknowledge the brilliant writer and former poet laureate of Toronto, Diane Brand. I had the opportunity to meet Professor Brand when she received the honorary doctorate at York University a little over a year ago. And as documents of local history in my adopted hometown here in Toronto, Brand's essays are exceptional, most especially those published in the newest edition of her book of collected essays, Bread Out of Stone, Recollections, Sex, Recognitions, Race, Dreaming, Politics, originally published in 1994 and reissued in 2019. Uh, I highly recommend it and check it out. Thank you very much. Okay. So, first topic, the new and old crisis in arts and humanities education. Uh, We've probably all been paying attention to the myriad uh alerts and calls for action and responses and letters and uh uh news articles that have been focusing on this, particularly uh in, in the context of COVID-19, but but also exacerbating trends that were that started long before uh 2020. Um panel, what have you been reading or following along with and and what's what's grabbing your attention in this?
1: Yeah, um it's I, I think that in the wake of the um, disruption to university teaching in the spring, it was immediately apparent that this was going to have really negative financial uh, impacts on universities. Um, and over the summer, a couple of, of universities, Roehampton and Indiana University of Pennsylvania, um, became public stories in higher education because of quick moves to um, you know, try to deal with budget problems basically by targeting humanities and arts education for cuts um, so I've been you know following the the um, say Hampton Twitter feed we'll put this on the on the podcast um, webpage um, and similar efforts to try to advocate for arts and humanities at Roehampton. but the thing that's been on my mind principally is how this is sort of the um, this seem, it seems as though the pandemic is in a way a sort of catalyzing event for a lot of downward financial pressures that are facing higher education in, in general, and the arts and humanities in particular. And so listeners, I'll let me just say that if, if bad news stresses you out, you might want to fast forward three or four minutes, um, because the picture of what's happening in higher education in general is pretty grim. So the pandemic obviously adds another major challenge to an already somewhat dire outlook in the short to medium term for arts and humanities and higher education. Um, at Roehampton, uh, I think back in May, there was an announcement that the university was going to try to eliminate 70 staff members, um, including on one report through voluntary severance for 40 academic staff, which I believe includes faculty there. Um, uh through uh, by mid-November and distressingly it was made clear that the priority will be to cut positions in the departments of dance and drama media culture and language and the school of education and the school of, of the humanities uh, apparently part of the justification for cutting there is a trend of lower enrollments in those fields um, though I'll note that um, in the letter that Nick Rideout uh, sent to the leadership there, he points out that these are fields, especially the arts, where a lot of first-generation students are getting their education. And so there's a disproportionate impact on, um, on a sort of class level um, uh, that, that this is effectuating. Um, so there, that is the story at Roehampton um, that, that I've been following. And then there's also the uh, retrenchment or restructuring that is planned at Indiana University of Pennsylvania, which is also targeting humanities and fine arts for cost savings. Um, I saw one uh, colleague on Twitter saying that their aim is to reduce their faculty overall by 25%, which is really, um, really dire. Um, and it wouldn't surprise me if there were more stories like this that emerged in the coming months. Um I I guess the the sort of broader picture here is what I'd like to talk about a little bit, which is that what brings us here is not just the way that the um, pandemic has affected enrollments. So that's the thing that that people are looking at, I think, like week to week in university planning. Um, The National Student Clearinghouse Research Center, which, Sarah, you you brought this um, resource to our attention, reported that as of October 22nd of this year, undergraduate enrollment, I believe this is for the United States, um, but similar patterns are evident elsewhere. That undergraduate enrollment is running 4.4% below last year's numbers. And that's overall enrollment. And it reflects unusually large dips in first year enrollment. So that 4.4 overall um, decrease, 4.4% decrease reflects a 13% drop in first year enrollments. And on the one hand, that's really bad. On the other hand, that might reflect a lot of uh, first year students who are taking a gap year and plan to enroll in the future when they can have more of the college experience. Um, and this is apparently has hurt community college is the worst, followed by public four-year colleges and then private four-year colleges. Um, But what's, I think, daunting about this is that even if there is a a sort of a bounce back in short-term enrollments next year, colleges have already been anticipating big demographic troughs coming up in the middle of the next decade, which I think, um, ironically and more distressingly, are traced to the 2008 financial crisis. That financial crisis started a Di- a a palpable or a sort of noticeable dip in the birth rate in the United States and when the students who would have been born in 2008 and 2009 get to college age there's going to be way fewer students by some estimates 15 percent fewer college students which means a lot less tuition money and with the wide defunding of public education in the United States uh, universities including public universities are very dependent on um, tuition dollars. So I have a few more points to get through, which I know it just gets it worse and worse. But I've tried to be sort of clear-eyed about this, and I think it's important for listeners to understand what may be coming. Um, you know that economic crisis, um, uh, and I think you could expect the current one that's being caused by the pandemic, in which will have an effect on birth rates and an effect on college tuition in you know fifteen to uh, seventeen years. Um, uh, also leads to a disproportionate decrease in humanities enrollments. So if you look at Department of Educa- U.S. Department of Education uh, information tracking majors in different disciplines. In around 2008, 2009, you see a drop off in humanities majors, which it makes sense to attribute to increasing pressure students feel to have college training that's going to guarantee them a lucrative source of income right after college. Um, And it's not across the board in the humanities, but it's pretty pervasive that humanities enrollments dipped in 2008, 2009 and then start coming up. Um, Behind all of this, there's the well documented squeezing of the middle class in general starting around 1980. Um, which came after and reversed trends uh, that were initiated after World War II, as the American middle class was buoyed by public investment, the GI Bill, etc. So, what it looks like actually is a sector-wide um, contraction uh, in higher education, uh, propelled by all of these different forces, and the and the pandemic is just one incident that's sort of allowing some things to reshuffle now. Um, You mentioned Noe's job market report. I'll just give one stat from that, which is that basically looking, he says that looking at the number of full-time and tenure-track jobs, so not just tenure-track jobs, but full-time contingent jobs and tenure-track jobs, Last year, around this time, he would have expected to see 30 or 40 of them, and there are 11 now. So that's a 65 to 75% decrease at this point in the calendar. That may change as uh, searches get approved and and universities reassess their financial situation, but it's not great. Um, And there's more to say about this, but rather than going on, I I will... I will see if you guys have reactions or interpretations of this as well.
0: Well, that's a. I mean, there's a a lot of information there uh, to to digest. Um, Jen, y- you've been posting quite a bit online about thinking about the current and future state of of higher ed. When you hear panels' uh, overview of uh, all of the data and the trends and and the the current state, um, is there any what what do you make of that? And are, are there any glimmers of, of optimism in there or, or different kind of takes that we might, a way of thinking about the, the current situation and, and its future impact?
2: Well, as you and I discussed last time we spoke, Sarah, um, I, I'm an optimist. I see, I see positive things in a lot of things, but also at the same time, we know that there's a lot of suffering and pain for our colleagues in the field on the horizon. And that's really hard to sort of, jibe with whatever kinds of bigger picture things I'm looking at. But I will say that in addition to panel's very uh, very thorough overview of the economic, um, the economic situation for higher ed, it takes uh, into account the demographic collapse, which we've known for a very long time was coming and it was beginning even before the pandemic. And then also though it doesn't take into account th- the disruptors that are occurring. Google is now offering uh, top of the line training for careers that start in the six figures at $49 a month. And we are also looking at schools that are producing students that come out with an associate's degree in very large numbers. So now we're taking a four-year model that has to adapt to a lot of two-year model students. Uh, In addition to that, we have all these boot camps that are coming up that are doing a really great job at quickly providing skills at very affordable rates and guaranteeing job placement in the, in the tech industry. So uh, we have failed to take into account all of these things. We've been very slow to digitally transform. And this touches on a frustration I've had uh, almost my whole life since I got a VIC-20 when I was eight years old, uh, that people don't see the implications of these media as they come out uh, in time. Uh, for And so I've been looking at this for a long time and asking why is the university in higher education? And I'm going to sort of focus on our field in particular here. Why are we so reluctant to embrace that change and, to, um, and I'm going to uh, bring in two uh, org- organizational psychologists that I really enjoy, Robert Keegan and Lisa Leahy. They write for Harvard Bus- Business Review a lot and they talk about why people don't change. And their assessment comes down to one very compelling idea, which is people do not change when they have a competing commitment. And in our field, I think that competing commitment is very clear, it's liveness. We have a commitment to liveness. And I'm not gonna say whether that's good or bad. However, that commitment as challenges have been met, uh, offered to it over and over again, has become more entrenched and in a way deeply conservative. Uh, And in in some ways, um, uh, Jean-Marie Higgins at Penn State, our colleague, she likes to call it fetishizing liveness. So we have been um, really reluctant to embrace digital transformation with lots of exceptions of course Uh, Sarah your work is one exception lots of people are looking at intermediate performance and digital performance but on the whole I think departments are structured to think of themselves as an alternative to liveness and that commitment to liveness is really we're really going to suffer if we um, don't find ways to start looking at our business models because I think what the future holds is lots of opportunity for performance And we'll talk about that when we get to our later topic. But one thing is the business model. We have to stop imagining that we're not a business. We are. uh, For good or for ill, we are a business. And departments are gonna have to start thinking entrepreneurially. How can we generate income streams and sustain ourselves outside of our normal channels? We look at our enrollments and our budgets, but we can start generating products from our departments. We have the skills and talents to generate products from our departments that could be uh, developing revenue streams that we haven't really fully explored. Sometimes for an unwillingness to explore it uh, and sometimes just from a lack of skills. Uh, But I really think that that's the future, particularly for performance departments that have so many skills that could be uh, used to generate alternative income streams to sustain themselves. And I think the same thing for regional theater, by the way. Um, So that's my thoughts.
0: Well, certainly the the model of, of most theater departments and performance studies, I think, is a little bit different, but most theater departments um, is, of course, closely aligned to the regional theater model, at least in the United States. And, you know, as I'm listening to you, panel, it does occur to me that that this also changes uh, internationally. The the picture even here in Canada, because of the way that our universities are funded, because of the existence of universities and colleges um, being in 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 two two kinds of systems. Um, you know, I, I don't see some of the same resistance, Jen, that you're that you're highlighting. Um, at the same time, you know, I, I think the UK is, a, is, a, is also a different model and, and operates. And, of course, funding plays into this a lot. Um, but we're certainly seeing a lot of changes, as, as you alluded to, with, with Roehampton and other universities. Certainly the, the global picture is also really changing. So you're seeing a lot of these kinds of conversations um, have been happening um, around entrepreneurship, for example, in Australia. And, um, and their vulnerability and exposure to uh, the international uh, student um, community, especially from China, um, and, and, the way, and, and the rise of Asian universities, which is the other big thing, is that if you look at the top-ranked global universities, there are more and more um, every year uh, Asian and Middle Eastern universities um, adding and also climbing those those international rankings lists. So there's a whole bunch of features going on. The the other or factors going on. The one other thing that occurs to me, though, is, um, you know, I, I think that certainly some of some of my colleagues here and perhaps elsewhere, um, you know, the the question of Google offering credentials and um, preparing people to work at Google and the attractiveness of that of that. Um, you know also raises this I think some really important questions about uh, tech industry accountability and responsibility and and we've certainly seen a very you know at best complicated um, environment so i mean in in addition to a kind of entrepreneurial attention, you know, which seems like, you know, the, the other side of, of the coin of neoliberalism, how do, how might we also think about, um, the kind of social cultural role of, uh, uh, of theater and performance studies in this context?
2: Well, I just, I want to say one thing too, uh, which is sort of related to that question, which is, I don't think what I'm talking about with digital transformation in the university is specific to universities or theater departments. Um, being a consultant, I have I'm working across multiple industries: uh, fintech, I'm in healthcare and wellness, um, health and beauty. Uh, they're all having the same conversation. I mean, Avon is still discussing whether or not they should become, you know, a direct to consumer um, mm-hmm. model, right? So. Um, we are, uh, this is a, a pattern across industries and that number that you gave about 25% and 20%, these are the numbers I keep hearing in room after room after room about layoffs. It's almost like a fixed number that people have been advised is the, is the way that they have to trim the fat off their organization in order to survive this onslaught. But also similar is the ways in which we fail to prepare for this moment, which was the moment that was going to arrive in every industry regardless of the pandemic, but it's just been accelerated. So, I know that doesn't answer your question about uh, our cultural responsibility and uh, what kind, but I think there are some checks and balances that theater and performance studies can provide to this sort of super fast, quick tech model. And I think we're going to talk about that in a little while uh, in the second topic. But um, it's an interesting question, and um, I don't know if we want to segue or what.
1: Well, I have some some responses to what you were bringing up, Jen. Um, the, I think you're absolutely right that one of those other challenges that I didn't mention was the alternative ways of gaining an education or a credential that's going to get you a job. The idea that you know a talented 18 year old could look at going to a private college or even a, a an affordable public college uh, put you know, eighty, hundred thousand dollars worth into that, come out with a credential that won't necessarily get them a job, or they could pay, you know, fifty dollars a month to to enter a boot camp, start to work in software. I think that absolutely is going to cost um, a higher education more. It's going to take another chunk out of that market for tuition dollars. But I do think there's a dimension to that relationship that uh, people like Scott is it Scott Galloway who who publishes that blog that's looked at higher ed this year. You know, I think the vision that he pre- presented in a post earlier this year of these sort of big uh, sort of mergers or, or uh, partnerships between like Google and Harvard, you know, offering that kind of credential—the sort of Harvard imprimatur with a you know Google or Amazon or whatever training program—misses the the sort of class prestige or class sorting function of college, which is also material. And so I don't think you're wrong. Like I do think it's a challenge, but part of the reason why I think that Galloway, among others, believe that the impact to higher education is going to shake out differently on different kinds of institutions is that there's still a kind of class sorting function that higher education provides, not one that we like to talk about openly because it's pretty crass. And, and we like to pretend that if you get into a great school, it's because you're just so talented and there's meritocracy and that that's the sorting system. But in fact, it's a it, especially for prestigious private colleges, it's one of the ways that uh, families uh, preserve wealth and, and handle, you know, sort of launder privilege to their children and so some of these universities I, you know i think that the idea that you know, Harvard could massively expand its business model by partnering with one of these credentialing um, uh, institutions would would have a downside to Harvard as well. Um, so I think there's that complicates the picture a little bit. Um, well, we it, kind it of saw change. that
0: with uh, with the MOOC, right? I mean, the, you know, yeah, EdX people and
1: don't want, students don't really want that. They want the college experience and they want the they want to be able to say they went to this school and make the friends and,
2: well, and Harvard doesn't need to. I mean, Harvard, Harvard doesn't need to. We're talking about you know maybe two tiers below and everything below that, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and Galloway's analysis makes that really clear. There are certain schools that can withstand this storm, the demographic collapse and everything coming after it. Yeah. So it's all of those other schools that have been accessible, again, that class sorting feature that have been accessible to, to those in the middle class and lower, like myself and other people I know, um, that are in jeopardy and that are really going to be challenged by this because uh, it's really hard. Yeah, yeah the, re- the real, real challenge...
1: Chal-
0: I'm oh, sorry, go ahead, panel.
1: Well, there's just one more thing I want to say before we have to move on for time, which is that the acknowledging what the position that people training in our field and training for academic jobs are facing, which is a tough one and a sad one. I was looking at a, a series of tweets by Danielle Valley, um, uh, and she was just talking about the 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 kind of torment of being in a contingent position and looking at this happen to the field that you've chosen um, I do think and I think we're about to talk about this when we talk about um, uh, digital tech and and you you know UX design etc that for many people training for academic careers right now, the best thing that they could do and the thing that will preserve their happiness will be to transition into alt tech careers of one type or another but that is that's ex- that's extremely painful and the failure of the system to take care of people who find themselves in that spot is uh should be scandalous actually
0: well there's a, there's a really intense kind of reckoning i mean because on the one hand i mean the 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 data are irrefutable. Um, on the other, um, you know, this is also a moment where one would hope we would be looking at more equity, more inclusive education, more opening up in opportunities. And so thinking about how how we might be able to leverage the tremendous change that's happening right now for the better and recognizing the ways in which our existing systems were exclusive and were barriers and did present uh, obstacles to, to different kinds of, uh, of social and personal transformation while also facilitating it for others. I mean, I, I, th- I think that there's I think it's important that we not lose track of some of the opportunities that that higher education has provided, even as we are critical of, of its of its current of its current shifts um, in this current in the moment. Um, but it does raise the question kind of turning to our second topic here of, um, so you've, you've gotten an undergraduate degree, you've gone on to graduate school, you've, uh, you know, you are deeply trained in a, in a certain kind of academic sense. And then, um, you do come on the market in a moment and, you know, there are so many good, talented people who are not having success in terms of finding, you know, that, that uh, you know, long aspired for, in some cases, a uh, tenured uh, full-time position, um, you know, where where do they go from there? Uh, Jen, you know, you are someone who has made a transition from academia into uh, what is sometimes called the alternative academic or alt ac uh kind of field um can you talk to us a little bit about this we we mentioned user experience design if you can explain a little bit what that is and how how is your work in in theater performance kind of led you to the moment you're in now
2: well and this is where you know your earlier question comes into play because user experience design is very hot Uh, it's a it's a term that was introduced by don norman in 1995 and I've been skirting around the edges of it since I started graduate school at NYU in 1998, dating myself. Um, so I um, I had to survive. New York was really, really expensive. I was a native New Yorker, but you know trying to be near the city was really expensive. So I, I had to find ways to survive. And um, consulting was it. And that's right when user experience was becoming big. That's right when digital products were on the horizon and people I got caught writing a script at a temp job, that's how it happened. And I thought I was gonna lose my job. And they called me and they said, you write scripts? And I said, yes, and they said, we need this. And so I got launched into a whole bunch of digital products right off right off the bat there. And that's how I entered that world. On the side, I always saw it as my side hustle because I wanted to be a scholar and an artist. I wanted to be a professor, an educator. I wanted to have a tenure track job. Um, and You know, some of that pain and struggle for me was giving up a very lucrative career. You know, I would dip off and decide I was very fortunate. I know my colleagues didn't have the same advantage. Uh, It was luck in a lot of ways that I got it. Um, But I was able to dip in and get, you know, a a substantial amount of money in a short period of time and come back and fund my theater company with it or fund or, you know, pay for my rent, uh, you know, pay for something a little more than ramen. Uh, So, um, But I always went back to doing theater, academia, scholarship, research. Um, What's really ironic about all of it is that when I finally did give up the ghost and and Sarah knows and and Noe knows and a lot of people who have offered me so much support, I have to say, it's just really touching. There are people inside the field that really do care and and I I really, really, really appreciated that. But that that academic time that I have is actually worth quite a bit because what we're finding is is that now we know that experience, the experience a person has with a product, uh, which is a consumer is like an audience member, that there is this level of ethnographic analysis that gives a competitive edge. And in 2018, uh, the McKinsey report came out saying that user experience research was really what gave companies a competitive edge in digital products. Uh, and it's that research part that made me start to market myself, not as a designer, even though I'm a certified designer, um, is that I thought my my past as a performance studies scholar, which I now market as an ethnography you know, a scholar, which is what I learned at NYU in the main, um, is um, really, really marketable because we're finding um, there's a, huge shift going on in the business world towards more social responsibility, more human-centered design, looking at problem solving from the perspective of human factors is what they call them. And ethnography is really big. They wanna do in-depth cultural studies. They want people who have observation. Uh, It's just like being a dramaturg, running surveys on consumers or not audiences, researching historical phenomenon, researching, being able to project that and telegraph that into the future. These are all skill sets that are highly desired.
0: You know, so I'm just going to interrupt you there because the I was, um, you know, I've been having some of the same kind of conversations with my colleagues in the Department of Design uh, here at York uh, in terms of the way they talk about. Uh, human-centered design, um, uh, problem-solving uh, teams, and and but especially the importance of research right now in 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 design. I mean, this is actually one of the things that that students are looking for um, in ter- in terms of design design as well. So I mean, it's it's there are all kinds of really interesting parallels that had not occurred to me before. Um, panel, you know, when you are talking to students um, and and thinking about like. You know, design and re- and re- and research and and how they're approaching it. I mean, to what extent are some of the the questions of the different things that you can do with a theater degree? Right. I mean, that comes up a lot. Is like, what are you going to do with that degree? And I mean, are these parts have these been part of your conversations? Um, are you starting to see some some parallels even at the at the undergraduate level?
1: You know, I wish that they had been more part of the conversations I've had with students directly up to this point, but WashU is one of those conservative institutions. It's a conservative department that I'm the chair of. We've been focusing in dance and, and drama in a particular mold for a long time, and, and we have been adapting and, and changing somewhat, but um, so uh, the... The the thing is though that I we are looking at how we're going to adapt. we the university is is has just a, um, greenlit a big cluster hire in digital transformation, something like twelve hires just in arts and sciences. We're putting in for one, and so I'm now actively writing the proposal that's going to explain why hiring someone who specializes in digital sonography, in motion and performance capture, in, in user design, that this is actually going to leverage what um, we've been doing in the sort of spatio-temporal live embodied environment, and make it something that students are going to want to train in for the 21st century. So, you know, it's it's it's. I know that's in a way a disappointing answer because we sort of presume a lot of our students are going to be, are not thinking about a career in theater primarily. But it some does, of them are though.
0: But it does raise the. I mean, it also just to kind of you know think back to our first topic. It also um, you know, it also speaks to the differentiation of different kinds of institutions uh, and those that that are really focused on different kinds of professional training um, or pre-professional training uh, versus the role of the liberal arts and institutions that have a really strong, you know, core curriculum or common core and, and, and ways that those augment and, and put those together. And, and it, it, you know, I think there's a, a little bit of a danger in these kinds of conversations about higher ed writ large, and mm-hmm. even theater and performance studies in higher ed writ large, that that presume a, 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 a singular kind of approach to the questions in in what is actually a lot of different a lot of different universities and a lot of different college systems and how that gets taken up. And, and I think that the the reminder of the second major is a really is a really important point. Um, however, you know, my my little digital. Uh, you know, uh, fetishist ears um, are you know very happy to hear of digital transformation hires being made at at um, in theater and and performance. at yeah. WashU. I think that's well,
1: great. Well, I think it is good, but I think part of the challenge we're going to face. Not to I don't you know um, I I don't want to disparage my wonderful university where I work, but I think that the mindset is that uh, data analytics sort of digitally enabled conventional research. Um, projects, not that they're conventional, they're they're transformed by digital, you know, sort of algorithmic uh, processes. But we want to argue that actually having students think creatively, think ethnographically, think about um, performance as a mode of communication that is integral to all of the kinds of uh, new technologically enabled communication that is coming and is already here is a smart strategic move, right? That, that this will enable our students to develop uh, facility with communication, facility with representation, um, uh, understanding the ways that human bodies communicate enabled by these tools. And that that is not, you know, a sort of fun uh, pastime along the way to becoming um, someone who can use algorithms to to analyze the natural world or the financial world, but that this is going to help transform the world for the better and help these students be marketable. So that's the sort of rhetorical project I'm looking at right now, and it's basically, it's absolutely an effort for the department uh, to make the department able to pivot into uh, uh, the way the world is being transformed by technology.
2: Well, there's so much in what you just said, panel, that I wanted to address because um, what's really hot right now is mixed method research, people who can do qualitative and quantitative together and make them speak to each other. And that's where I'm getting a lot of leverage. And even just uh, nine months ago, uh, some of my mentor network told me not to market myself as a UX researcher because this was at the very beginning of the pandemic, because people um, say that, Researchers are just people who wear glasses and take a lot of really good notes and that um, you are a design thinker, you have the big picture, you have creative design background, you've been an artistic director, an AD in both corporate and um, artistic settings, that's really reducing yourself and um, I've proven them wrong, I think, because uh, just during the pandemic, what we realized is we're trying to roll out these digital products and they're failing because we're trying to roll them out so fast and it's not addressing human factors in a very qualitative way. And because I've done a lot of data analysis, a lot of algorithmic uh, study of um, social media and in particular for other financial institutions, I'm able to do both. And so it, that that is that sort of amphibious uh, kind of quality that we want to, and I think as theater scholars and studies, we could stand to do a little more of that qu- quantitative analysis um, mm-hmm. and, and putting measures on our, our scholarship and, and, and looking at analytics of, of who's reading our scholarship and, and measuring that back and having that conversation through analytics with our audiences um, and, and therefore training our students and our graduate students how to deal with quantitative data when, when they're focused on qualitative data.
1: Well, we're getting, I mean, we're getting some of that, you know, um, I mean, in the field, Derek Miller has been a real leader in using statistical analysis and quantitative methods to to re-examine questions of theater history. Certainly, if you're an academic whose research is being measured, you are aware of the the language of data being spoken in the dean's office. And, and hey, so now. you get it. Even if you're, <laughs> oh, sorry, the dean is back. Ouch. Um, <laughs> no, it's true. I mean, I, I became true. chair and, and quickly had to learn what academic analytics was and, and learn how to very quickly make a persuasive point by, by br- showing up to the meeting armed with data that I knew and could speak with facility about. So even if we're of a disposition to be fetishists of the live and to believe that the universities are valuable in part because they've resisted all of the corrosive changes that have come with industrialization and and capitalism that um you you're you' you're going to be left behind and you're going to be in a really precarious position if you're not able to at least recognize the world that you live in but also show how these older forms of knowledge and practices are actually indispensable to um, uh, finding solutions for uh, I don't know for whether it's developing new commodities or uh, attacking social problems in in ways that are not profit seeking and um, The theater performance studies is a deep well of knowledge about what human beings and human bodies are in their sensual or sort of sensing and perception um, uh, uh, attributes and the way we communicate with each other. So I think it's actually it's possible to make a very persuasive case. Uh, It remains to be seen how easy it is to be taken seriously.
2: Well, the value I provide, I'm not sure that I could have provided it had I not spent time all these years studying uh, ethnography, performance studies, theater history. I just, I don't know how, I, and people are always amazed at the interdisciplinary connections I make, and that was all done in the crucible of our field. So I am a big fan of the value of our field beyond the borders of just uh, performance for its own sake, even though that's a valuable endeavor as well. Don't mean to say it's not, but we do have to think about making money sometimes, right? You know, Absolutely. And, and, and I think this is something that we can leverage And I'm here for it.
0: Well, certainly in the context of of COVID-19, in addition to compelling some of these digital shifts, I mean, you know, uh, there was a whole lot of uh, resistance to acting on screen and acting on cameras. And and all of a sudden now, all of us are acting for the camera all the time in some ways. Um, But of course... I mean, now should be the moment that we have the easiest time making the case for theater and performance for its own sake. Because if you look at what is getting people through lockdowns and through the pandemic, uh, it is not just sort of overt performance media, so thinking about... You know, Netflix series and uh, NT theater live and the availability of um, recorded theater on on you know on on TV and things like this. Um, but also the performance uh, capture that's happening on things like TikTok and the prevalence of dance as now perhaps the common currency and uh, you know, and the ways in which Instagram and I mean, then look, just in the last six months, the sort of, takeoff of TikTok and Reels, right? The idea that it's not about image anymore, it's about video. And it's not video of the world as much as video of yourself making um, digitally augmented uh, enhanced uh, performances, Um, whether that's re-performances in the case of Sarah Cooper, uh, you know, taking the, the the verbatim text of Donald Trump and and playing with that in clever ways, or parodies that are circulating, um, and then and then endless iterations and echoes and copies of that. Right. So think about the the duets that people are doing on on TikTok and the and the the ways in which every this kind of endless citationality of of performance methods are are proliferating. Um, which you know to go back to panels. Point about human beings and human bodies also kind of brings us around to our third topic right which is this kind of extraordinary uh, performance very much about bodies but also thinking uh, very critically about uh, politics and the kind of cultural political space that we're in right now um, it's a it's for my money a kind of remarkable achievement uh, so this is circle jerk that uh, that premiered, um, uh, online and so there were a few live streaming performances of this. I, I happened to see uh, a couple of them. Uh, uh, I don't know if I caught the premiere or the, day, or the day after, um, but it's now available on demand. We'll put a link up to that on the website if you'd like to, to go and see it. Um, but this is a kind of remarkable performance that began as a as a live event um, and then had to quickly pivot. But in pivoting, it it I think one of the kind of wonderful things about the show is that it embraced all of the limitations of our current situation and all of the uh, conditions of an art of artificiality. The the setup of the Zoom background in a kind of banal domestic space somehow you know attempt to enliven it. The the acting for the the ring light that hovers behind a, a phone or a computer um the the quick transitional modes and also the idea of of having to make work with you know only the folks in your pod i mean i think that there are some really interesting kind of structural formal devices that that this show embraces while also thinking in a very rich and and I think fairly sophisticated way about uh, cultural positions particularly in queer communities um, especially focused in gay men um, relative to other larger social changes being called for across you know racial equity and racial justice um, so I'm a I'll just be really on I'm a big fan of this show um, if if somewhat um, uh, too prudish to to say so and in, in, in a whole lot of context right so I I say this with like at, you know actual perhaps even audible blush happening um, but I but you know not to take up all of the time what what did, what did you think of this wonderful show that I loved it, <laughs> so I, I probably you know totally biased our discussion um, but but you know Jen were you able to see the show and, and what were your thoughts on 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 circle jerk?
2: Oh my gosh, Uh, it was amazing. I was very distracted by issues of form and content. (laughs) Um, I was very distracted by thinking about what this represented. I was also deeply distracted by the deep nostalgia of this piece. Uh, I was introduced to New York at a very young age, New York theater at a very young age by gay men Um, and Charles Ludlow, Bush, I painted sets at the Ridiculous when I was a teenager in overalls. Oh, I mean, wow. that's
1: awesome.
2: I, and I hung out with gay men as this like little sixteen-year-old girl um, from Catholic school. And it was—I um, I get little like um, chill bumps even just thinking about it because it made me think go there immediately. I was almost overwhelmed, crying because the aesthetic so reminded me. It even reminded me a little bit of Richard Foreman uh like rhoda and potato land kept coming up for me and it just made me feel so nostalgic and then also because i'm a new york transplant nostalgic for new york sure <laughs> and that was also um you know i was mourning so much watching that piece and i think that piece in a lot of ways is a, is a sort of dirge right it's there's there i was missing the audience <laughs> i was missing the new york insider jokes that you would share together in a in a small downtown theater and laugh at I was uh, mourning New York. I was mourning the gay community of the 80s and 90s that was also bound together by a plague. Um, I was mourning. That's, I I mean, it was just, it was beautiful in that way. I have questions about the form. I have questions about whether the form is something that's gonna telegraph forward. Is it more like Saturday Night Live? Should it have been a movie? Should it have, been? you know, like, oh, why was it not a movie? Um, Why did we need that liveness? Because, you know, we're mourning it in a lot of ways. and so that—that's that, that's just my my kind of visceral response to it.
1: I, lo- I love that because it's very much in contrast to my response. Not that I didn't also like it. I didn't love it. It didn't. Pro- I didn't uh, generate a lot of emotion in me. But I totally recognize what you mean about the the sense of there being a kind of soul of downtown New York theater. Uh, reimagined or recreated, um, and the the sort of feelings of attachment that that would activate. I felt like technically it's this tour de force. It's like this amazing demonstration of what is possible in theater, forced onto laptops and streaming. Um, the the video mixing, the way that a sort of digital reality, <clears throat> a digital cultural reality is um, integrated into something that's live and has a sense of place, but it sort of has a sense of place not by virtue of, I would say, an attempt to represent a, a kind of, you know, box set or realistic situation so much as you get the sense of like, oh, they're doing this in their, like, apartment or their you know their' their irregularly shaped very odd um, performance space that they've managed to put together in New York and using the bulkhead and and you know reimagining all of these spaces it, it did it felt to me like you know sort of like low budget, uh british sci-fi in its campiness and, the, and specifically with respect to mise-en-scene like i felt like i was watching old doctor who but it's it is it was obvi- that was on obviously deliberate like there's a kind of trashiness and a silliness to the effects um but at the same time i'm just kind of amazed by how it was able to be put together and performed live repetitively um as drama <laughs> i don't know it made me feel insane it made me fe- it, it wasn't it did not give me a lot of senses of pleasure because i felt like as uh, perhaps as a result of it being rather biting satire in a sense though also loving and embracing the kind of um i don't know digital hallucinatory world that many of us live in um there was just a kind of, I think I felt a little old. I felt a little overstimulated. I felt like I maybe wasn't in on some of the in-jokes uh, that these you know very young, fresh- uh, Well, okay, let, and, let me ask you a quick question
0: here, worried. panel. Yeah, uh-huh. so ha- let me just, quick, how did you watch it? Like, where did you watch it? it. How, how did you watch it?
1: I watched it on my laptop this afternoon. Okay. Um most mostly undistracted. Most but not entirely undistracted.
2: So and, and
1: Jen, how did you watch it?
2: I also watched it in my laptop, in my co-workspace with earphones on.
0: Okay, so I I actually think that this this show and part of the the brilliance of this show is not just um what it is, I think it also really uh speaks to how you watch it. So I, I watched it when it was when it was in in a live stream and I I had it I cast it to my television, um, and I finally convinced my my cohabitor co-worker um, who I am constantly blowing the eardrums out of um, uh, to to invest in a new television that was even bigger. So we so it was on a it was on a fairly size of like for us the biggest television we've ever had, and I ran Twitter simultaneously with it for both of the performances, and precisely to what you are talking about Jen is actually the experience that I had. So I was watching it with a whole bunch of people who were live tweeting, some of whom were in New York, some of whom were part of that New York scene going back to the 70s, 80s, 90s, some of whom are are working, you know, working in that space now. Um And uh, and and what was great is that, you know, I would I mean, I didn't tweet very much, but I loved and it felt like the audience. And it was um, and people started retweeting their favorite lines. People took pictures of the of their television or their laptops of their favorite moments and started posting that. And then I, so I told you, I've seen this a couple of times the the other night that I saw this, um Sarah Paulson and um, uh, and Holland Taylor were on. and so they started live tweeting, and then all of their like, followers from everywhere started live tweeting. And there became this also kind of wonderful convergence culture, right? Because I've also been watching Sarah Paulson in in *Ratchet*, And so in terms of like, so you could kind of play off all of these different kind of moments and there became, you know, I was thinking a lot of Marvin Carlson's haunted stage, right? Where in this instance, when you have, you know, people who are very prominent uh, performers themselves in the audience, but performing their audience-ness, Right? And performing as an audience member. They become in that they become infused not only for the for who they are as a as a personality or as a celebrity on 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 social media, but also for all the things that we know about them from all the other media, and of course the show actually takes that up, which for me of course becomes and really speaks to the fact that it it in some ways and I I don't mean this in the kind of crass um, sexual illusion of the show's title, but it does become a little bit about a whole group of people all mm-hmm. sort of simultaneously yep. stimulating and being stimulated by each other um in a kind of wonderful uh, uh circle, which also of course thinks goes back historically to think about the globe right and the and the the wooden o and so I would say that there's a kind of beautiful uh I know. Amazing. I know the the puns, the jokes write themselves, folks. Yes, but um, you
1: and you manage to do it in a way that will not threaten us with getting a, an adult content rating on iTunes. And I, I just thank you.
0: I so really, much. I really hope not. Um, or or I, perhaps imperil my my position as as one of you know uh, ostensible authority. But all I can say is that I think that there is a kind of fantastic. Um, so I, I sort of embraced the circularity of that and the and the fact that it did feel like like so many things in this show came full circle and 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 beyond. and so I, I think it also I, I think this is in many ways the future of of performance and the future of performance is hybrid. And I really hope yeah. that when we come out of the current limitations that we take and keep some of these, um, uh, some of these discoveries and revelations into into future work,
1: I I think that's great. I, I like the idea that actually pushing further into the overstimulation and the distraction of of multiple media channels happening simultaneously would actually make it into a kind of transcended experience rather than just a kind of uh, I don't know. I felt I found bits of it a little bit irritating, um, but but because of the way I was watching it. But I actually wanted to touch on something that Jen said too, which is that the 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 costume changes on one hand i saw that and i was like oh that's so interesting because this is part of its investment in theatricality itself right like like rapid costume changes are something that any edited media or film or television show immediately get r- gets rid of. You don't have to worry about somebody changing their entire look in 45 seconds and then coming back on stage. But this show has it. But as you point out, of course, that's also required by pandemic theater producing. You need, you, you can't have a ton of actors. So you need to have actors playing multiple roles. You need to have those costume changes. So in a way, it, it shows... Uh, a quirk, one of those quirky ways in which live performance and those techniques actually are something that helps you get through the confine- the confinements that are coming through unpredicted change like, uh, like the pandemic.
2: There is something about this that really, really touched me. It's something that I related to at a deep level is this concept of the oppressed becoming an oppressor and the self-awareness in creating art that that creates when you become aware that you're participating in some kind of racially privileged class of people, how do you even start to make art again? And I have to confess that that is a huge thing that has been haunting me these past 10 years, is I don't even know how to make art anymore. And I, and I, and I found that question haunting this piece, and this was their answer to it, was to do this karma whoring, mimetic repetition of things, and um, it was so genius. The content was so genius. The writing was so virtuosic. Uh, I just, I could not get over it. I was having little mini epiphanies with the things they were writing all the time. Um, the uh, quality of the recording I had was not great. Um, and I think, Sarah, that that, that uh, what live stream experience that you're talking about is was so great that uh, that I would have I would have really enjoyed it all the more because it was the audience I was missing.
0: Well, I I think there's tremendous opportunity here, and and you know we could we could actually go into a whole other area about how uh, at how like the, the kind of genius of producing this and how it was put together both in terms of its logistics but also. Uh, how this came to be and and the support for this and and I think that you know Harris deserves a, a lot of you know kudos and credit for figuring out how to make you know continue to make different kinds of work in in the in the existing system and, and to leverage that and you know it's it, he did that with slave play in terms of Blackout nights and and opening up affordability, of course, Hamilton with the with the with the tickets available online and Ham for Ham, and so I think there's, I think this is kind of the next step in a in a really exciting progression. Um, So thank you all for that. And and for, you know, I, I, we really encourage, you know, listeners to to check it out. It's still available recordings of them online. And, and perhaps you even want to start watch parties, because again, I highly recommend watching this in real time with other people who are engaging even in a in a virtual sense. Um, okay, so now uh, my privilege as host is to bring us to the last brief comments, and um, this is the part of the show in which we talk about drafts, uh, what we're working on, what we're thinking about, uh, what we have uh, planned uh, for, for the future, um, to the extent that anyone can plan for the future. Um, Jen, what, what are you thinking about? What's your draft?
2: Well, I have two things. I'm starting my new position. I'll be working with an M tech think tank in Washington, DC. We're using human centered design processes to solve social problems. Uh, so I'm really excited about that. That just sort of fell into my lap last week. It's mind blowing. Uh, the words think tank just blew my mind. <laughs> uh, but it's, it, it's really a dream come true for me to be in a room with a lot of smart people thinking about things with high social impact. Uh, And I'm really excited to get started on that. But the second thing I wanted to sort of toss out there is uh, Dr. Christiana Harkulich and I are doing a, a critical retrospective of Buffy the Vampire Slayer as a podcast. And we are launching it in January, and we're very fortunate that Stacey Abrams has just brought Buffy right back into the news just to tee us up and knock it out of the park for us. So we're really excited. I wanted to give that a little plug. Look for it in, in, in January. You can follow me or Christiana to see updates about when the first one drops.
0: That sounds great. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. That'll be another fun thing to listen to. Uh, panel, how about you? What are you thinking about these days?
1: um well i had I had two sort of candidates for the draft, and i'm gonna go with the one that's not dark and scary good call <laughs> uh, which has yeah, yeah, um I won't even mention it um I'll sit on it for a bit um but it has to do with one of the many many disruptions and uh transformations of social life that the pandemic has brought out that I hadn't really thought about, but that I heard about on another podcast that I listened to. The podcast is Doughboys. This is uh, Nick Weiger and Mike Mitchell, two um, L.A.-based writers and comedians who have a podcast where they just just review fast food and processed food. But they mentioned in the course of one of their segments that they'd noticed that in L.A., when you now order food from a restaurant, in some cases— People have noted that they will end up going to the address that's listed on Grubhub or whatever the, the app is that Postmates, I think, that um, uh, allows them to pick up the food. And what they're finding are these sort of undecorated storefront kitchens where multiple restaurants have combined their operations and their menus to serve just the you know, gigantic market for takeout. In LA, and why I think this has a you know performance studies application is just the research that people like Josh Abrams have done into the you know, theatricality and performative um, or performance elements of food service and restauranting. I mean, imagine ordering a meal from a restaurant that you've been to over the years, and you have a sense of the the feel of it and the atmosphere and the scenography of it and the food gets to your house and you're like yeah this is what i ordered it came from you know sugarfish or whatever but that the reality is it's just being cooked without any of that stagecraft that restaurants have always had um, and also in sort of ways that are combining the infrastructure for efficiency purposes. It's, it's sort of dystopian. It's not something that I think is necessarily, you know, good or bad, but it just struck me as an odd feature. One of there must be thousands of sorts of transformations of everyday life that um, are happening all around us we might not notice.
0: That that is fascinating. Sort of thinking about the, you know, it. Well, it kind of goes to other things we've been talking about, which is, in some ways, um, we're we're all backstage now, um, and uh, uh, and except what's sort of virtually pr- projected. Um, my, my draft is is, um, is just a kind of uh, in an attempt to combat the the Zoom fatigue. Um, I've been returning to to printed books. Um, and so trying to do a certain amount of reading that is not for research, mind you, because I'm not able to do much of that at all, but but just like putting myself in a different headspace, not just in materially, but also conceptually. And so I've been rereading all of my books by Susan Sontag. And. Um, And um, and so just and and I love Susan Sontag um, because I and I love Susan Sontag right now because in in, of course, on photography from from the 1970s, she has a wonderful whole whole passage. I've cited it before where she talks about that with the coming of of video technologies, um, that the that the world will really become a a feature of narcissistic self-surveillance. And, and I just, you know, I, I started talking about this in the context of social media a few years ago. And now, as I reread it, I'm just like, oh my gosh, the woman nailed Zoom years ago.
1: Um, the other, and, and on the, And on the basis of just chemical photography, right? Just cheap photographs. That's what she's.
0: Well, she was looking at. Yeah, she was. Well, she was looking at that. But she was also I mean, she was tracking um, the changing technologies around photography and its circulation. But she was also I mean, I mean, uh, you know, she was also looking at that, that in the context of emerging video art. Um, so, you know, I think she finished, you know, that essay she would have written just before Namjoon Pike's um, TV Buddha from 1974. But there, you know, he has a Buddha facing a television with a video camera projected at the Buddha. So he is watching himself on TV. So the even early kind of, um, you know, late 60s, uh, early 70s, uh, television and video technologies would have been part of this. And but what Sontag projected is that in the same way that photographs proliferated um, and became a currency, right, something that we exchanged, um, and that that were as valuable for their circulation as they were for their instantiation, right? So moving away from from Barth's argument about the you know, studium and the punctum and the emotional impact of photography, that she's able to kind of project into and think about what will video do as it becomes uh, a, a widely accessible mass media for people. And what she anticipates is that we will use it as what she calls uh, self-surveillance narcissism, right? So we will we will make performances of ourselves that we will watch, and we will watch ourselves, right? In these kinds of modes. And so, again, you know, I I don't know if you've discovered the hide self view. I consider this to be a really important. Uh, mental health preserving tool for those of us who spend, you know, uh, multiple hours a day on Zoom um, because, Indeed. you know, we were not meant to be in meetings eternally with ourselves. Um, but the other piece of, of Susan Sontag that I refer you to is, of course, um, towards it's towards the end, I think, of um, illness as metaphor. Of course, her wonderful book, Kind of Taking Up uh, Cancer and Tuberculosis, she has um uh, as contrasting uh, metaphoric illnesses she also has a passage about um, the amnesia of the 1918-1919 pa- pandemic and the the argument that she attributes there is that the that the the flu pandemic of 1918 1919 failed to become a metaphor for anything and so it dropped very quickly out of history and if if you, Perhaps like me, um, have been thinking, "Gosh, why don't I know more about the 1918-1919 pandemic?" I've been looking at a lot of things from that period, and they, no one ever mentioned the pandemic. I find this as a really kind of interesting example, and 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 something that now is making me think, "Okay, so is COVID? Uh, will COVID become metaphorical? And and if so, because it's impossible right now to imagine that this will not become." M- m- deeply entrenched and encoded within cultural memory, if not a, a kind of epistemological paradigm shift that we uh, continue for, for, you know, the foreseeable future. And so I, I find looking, you know, uh, Sontag's take on that, um, on both of those things that seem so rich to our current moment and her kind of in, insight and, and even prescience into that from the past really uh, invigorating. And, and they also are books that smell like old books, which I really enjoy fantastic so, well that's it for us today thank you both very much it's great to see you as always panel and Jen welcome and thank you for for participating in this episode of on tap and we will uh, be here next time for more conversations thank you all
1: on tap is produced with the support of the Performing Arts department of Washington University in st. Louis and its master's program in theater and performance studies our associate producer is Carly Kessler our intro music is by Helix, and our outro music is by Gabriel Kahane. You can learn more about the podcast at our website, ontappod.com. Contact us at our email, hosts at ontappod.com, and follow us on Twitter, at ontappodcast.